Sneakers on shoes. What's the matter, Morty? Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. No, it hasn't. Hi, my name is Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And today we are joined by a truly remarkable woman. She is a fashion icon, a New York legend, and a best-selling author of 10 books, including Lipstick Jungle, The Carrie Diaries, and Sex in the City. Her one-woman show, Is There Still Sex in the City, returns to Cafe Carlisle next week. Candace Bushnell, we are so thrilled to have you here. I am thrilled to be here. It's great to see you guys. Yeah. First of all, I just want to say that your writing and the characters that you have created have impacted so many people. But I feel like Chelsea and I owe you a very special debt of gratitude because we really would not have this podcast without you. So thank you. Well, thank you, guys. <laughs> That's very nice. That's very nice. And the Instagram. Yeah, yeah. we have that going, too. So we usually ask every guest on this podcast the same first question, which is how they identify. And by that, we mean as a Charlotte, as a Miranda, etc. This is clearly a psychotic question to ask you as Carrie is literally your pseudonym. But would that be your choice today? Because I've always thought that you give off Samantha energy personally. Well, you know, I always say, and as I say this in the show, most of my friends were like Samantha. When the show first came out and people started saying like, oh, they were one of the characters or the other, my friends and I always used to laugh because we it made sense. Carrie, Samantha, and Miranda were friends, but Charlotte, no. In real life, <laughs> they would not be friends with her. So you She's don't like too, Charlotte. So you're not no, hanging I out do, with those girls. <laughs> I, it, I do. I do like Charlotte. I mean, we all have a Charlotte. We all know a Charlotte. I think Darren really tailored that character to Kristen to Davis. Fit Kristen yeah. Davis because, you know, he wanted her on the show, but she was like kind of uptight. So you just went with it. I, I just went with it. I do also want to put it out there. We are aware that you are a different person from the fictionalized version of yourself that has appeared on television and, and film screens. I feel like that can be a hard concept for some fans to grasp, but I just want to let you know we have grasped we do that. Know. <laughs> that is great. Uh, but yes, and, you know, and Kim Cattrall would always say, you're my inspiration. For Samantha. I was like, okay, great. I don't think I have as much sex as Samantha. I don't think <laughs> anyone no does, no, to be does. fair. So I want to know about your early days in New York before things were glamorous for you. What was your life like then? And how did you start to establish yourself as a writer in a city where everyone is trying to be a writer? It's interesting because I've I'm supposed to be writing my memoirs, which will really be about when I first came to New York in the late 70s. And it was actually pretty glamorous. The second or third night I was in the city, I went to Studio 54. <gasps> so I started working for this newspaper called Night Magazine that was a lot of pictures of people at Studio 54, photographs of people at Studio 54. But I also started writing for them. And I wrote a lot about fashion, you know, so the whole fashion models, the glamour was always there from the beginning. I, you know, I came to New York to be a writer and I started writing right away. So I started getting published 
right away. You know, there were lots of little newspapers, independent newspapers. I mean, now I guess it would be the equivalent of blogs. You know, people would start up a little newspaper in their, you know, their loft and make it work and sell it. You know, paper was king. That sounds incredible. What is the craziest thing you ever saw at Studio 54? There were a lot of topless women. <laughs> Drugs. I was so young. I I wasn't one of those people who went down to the basement where apparently if you like poked the ceiling, the ceiling <laughs> you know, bags of cocaine would fall out. I think they kept like money and I was bags say, of- the, the money Steve Rebell was hiding the, from yes, the IRS. Like, the money and there was like cocaine and Mick Jagger. So I wasn't cool enough to be hanging out down there. Of course, you know, I was like 18. So I was there when Bianca Jagger came in on the white horse, which wasn't oh <laughs> as wow. big of a deal as Ew. in pictures. Really? Yeah. It was kind of like, oh, whatever. You know, New York was a super cynical place. People were really, really cynical. Wait, so she and rode it on a white horse and no one that was there actually cared? Not that much. Yeah. Thank God that, <laughs> you know, that it one was like photographer see, was in there. Yeah, it's like you would see weird stuff happening in New York all the time. I mean, the homeless population was huge. So it was – and there were giant cockroaches. And, you know, people were defecating. You know, there would be like those sort of big pots outside of buildings where they have like some little tree <laughs> – yeah, I mean, you <laughs> see people taking a dump. I mean, you saw <laughs> so, so no different than now, basically. <laughs> it was actually, it was, it was, it was worse back then. And there were Harry Krishna parades. <laughs> I miss them. Where are they? <laughs> yeah, I know. They and then they all went to Madison Square Garden, and they were married by Reverend Moon. Oh yeah, I remember those. Yeah. Like thousands of them. And they would, you know, be massing in the street all in orange. And I used to get, like, tangled up. Like, don't get messed up there. You'd get tangled up in their robes. Moving forward <laughs> a little bit, I want to talk about your time at Cosmopolitan in the 80s because the legendary Helen Gurley Brown was your boss, and she was kind of your cultural predecessor in many ways. Yes. And she was notorious. Yeah. Yeah, um, we know. <laughs> yes. So... And there were lots of stories about her. You know, I would see her in the elevators, see her like now and again. And she was very friendly. But that, you know, the whole idea of orgasms, that was her. And that was huge in the early 80s. You know, it was like people had never had sex before. And <laughs> certainly nobody was talking about the female orgasm. I mean, that was huge. That was on the cover of every magazine. And oral sex was really big. Heterosexual men were trying to do it all the time and, <laughs> you know, really took pride in were it. Were they good at it? <laughs> yeah, most of them <laughs> seem to be pretty good at it. That's good to know. You know, she really paved the way for talk about sex, but also – it was a very particular time in the culture where you had this, first of all, this huge mass of baby boomers. So right. I know that like young people today, Gen Z, they're like, I can't get a job. Well, <laughs> try getting a job in 1979. 
1980. It was right. impossible because that was like right kind of in the middle of the, you know, boomer mass of young people. But more importantly, you saw feminism actually take on a concrete manifestation. You had a lot of women who were going out and getting jobs. And it was women's magazines that were disseminating all of this information to young women about what you could do, who you could be, how to act in an office, what to wear, how to get a job. You know, in a way, it's really the beginning of the times that we live in. Before that, you went to college to get your MRS. It was really the first time when women were encouraged and it was acceptable for young women to get a job outside of the home and to really live that sex in the city life. So by the time I wrote Sex in the City, I'd already been living that sex in the city life for 15 years. I want to hear more specifically about the origins of the column. I had been trying to write a column probably since 1980. And I had this idea that if I wrote a column, it, you know, it would be like, my my ideal was to be like Dickens, you know, write the column every week and then you get paid because as a freelancer, it's a very unstable kind of job. So I, in fact, had a relationship column at Mademoiselle in probably 1984 and then the editor got fired. So that only lasted about Maybe three. And when you were things. at Cosmopolitan, was that more on a freelance basis or were you in the office? I every was day? I was in the office and that that was really probably like a year. So I worked for Ladies Home Journal, then Good Housekeeping, then Cosmo. Then I think I was freelance for a couple of years, and then I had a job as a staff writer at Self Magazine while I was working in an office, then I was always like making connections. You know, you just, you would go out, you would meet other editors or they would read your things. They would call you, you would pitch, you know, it was always pitching. And that's where that. Sex and the City started, this idea of what it was like. That was really like my specialty was doing stories for Mademoiselle Magazine or Cosmo or Glamour about young women in the city. And I would interview my friends. And then you would interview a shrink just so it had some sort of gravitas. But they, those were <laughs> right. really like, they were really precursors to sex in the city. And your relationship with former Condé Nast Big Week, Ron Galati was who, aka the real Mr. Big, was chronicled yes. in your columns. And of course, on the show, unlike the show, you did not end up together. What did he think about your relationship being out in the open? And do you ever cross paths with him today? I haven't seen him, but I do talk to him now and again on the phone. He calls me and I'm always like, what the hell does he want? We, um, we all have that person. <laughs> but he's really fun and he's got a really big personality. You know, to tell you the truth, he loved it. 
the column Sex and the City and the book Sex and the City, it's literary. It's written for a small audience. The New York Observer was like the New Yorker in the sense. Joan Didion read my column and loved it. So wow. it's like now when people read the book, they're like, I don't get it. It's like, you know, it's written for a small erudite kind of audience. You know, so in that world, you know, it was like, you know, people were, a lot of people were written about in the column. You know, they loved it. It was like a sort of badge of honor. Yeah. You're being mentioned by the cool kid. You're the cool kid in the circumstance. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> did you ever run into Joan Didion on the town? Like, did you hear this from the horse's mouth? Oh, yes. All the time. <laughs> amazing. Because she went out. I mean, there were just tons of literary events and, you know, there was a group of, it was probably 2,000 people who went out pretty much every night. You know, there was a woman named Peggy Siegel who was sort of the grand dame of parties and she did movie screenings and she did all kinds of events. And, you know, it was Peggy. And people were really, really concerned with social status and where you are in the pecking order. And, you know, Peggy would say, well, there aren't more than, you know, 400 good people on any (laughs) night. It was an atmosphere that was pretty much the opposite of what it is today. It was very exclusive, velvet rope, VIP area within the, you know, VIP area. I mean, there were some clubs like Moomba. I I don't even know how many people. Maybe you could fit like 90 people. Maybe. (laughs) You know, and... It was always – and it was the same people. But also within that world, you were an it girl in that group. Yes. What is it like to be that bitch? Like you were in the leagues of like the Madonnas, the Edie Sedgwick's, the Chloe Sevenies. What's that experience like and were there girls that you looked up to in that way, it girls? Madonna was somebody who I have never seen her in real life. I've never been <laughs> okay, in the same wild. room with Madonna, which I have to say I think is kind of odd because we came – we're basically the same age and we came to New York at the same time and – you know, she had no money when she first came to New York and she was like eating food out of garbage cans. And I was like, yeah, that was pretty much like what my life was like. You know, when when I first came to New York, I briefly thought like, oh, maybe I should be a pop star, uh, <laughs> you know, or an actress, which I think everybody thinks. It was just, it was too scary. You know, this was also a time when men heterosexual men were so like demanding of sex, it was almost hard to kind of avoid like the casual kind of rape. You would walk down the street and you would be so harassed. That was one of the reasons why I worked for women's magazines. I was like, I can't take it. You know, if you say no, then, well... You don't get the job, and then you've got this freaking sulky asshole. That must have been really scary. It was really scary. You know, it's like Madonna is somebody who could handle it. Like, I couldn't handle it. Just women and gay men for you. You're like, that's the work environment I want to be around. that was what I could do. It throws such a monkey wrench into things because you never – it's like 
you're never being valued for your work. And this is certainly an omnipresent conversation that still goes on today. To bring it back, I think that speaks to the intellectual world you were talking about, where you would more often run into Joan Didion than, say, Madonna. And I was right. wondering how you first met Darren Starr and like what those uh, initial conversations about adapting Sex and the City were like. Well, I met Darren Starr because I was working for Vogue, and I won't do my imitation of Anna Wintour. Oh, you can. But Please do it. No, no, no. She won't care. She's not listening. I don't know if you know this, Candace, but she doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> no, I always, you know, I just, I always imitate everybody and I use, always use the same voice. But um, she, I was doing profiles, celebrity profiles, and Darren Starr was doing a show called Central Park West. I went to L.A., to interview him. And he's really the only person I've ever interviewed that we ended up being friends. You know, we got along great. I went to the set of Melrose Place. Yes. And I think it was the episode where one of, because I never watched, I never watched TV. I didn't own a TV. I watched Melrose Place as a child. I could probably so fill you in what episode it was. There was like was. one episode where one of them, Sammy Joe or somebody got buried in the, in a, coffin or something sounds about right yeah i think maybe sydney and kimberly yes, buried her yeah kimberly it was and it was like it was so outrageous and darren was just laughing it's like the funniest thing like, yes this is just so funny and um and then he came to new york and i was still doing the story and he wanted to go out to the hamptons so i actually took him around new york i took him to bowery bar I introduced him to Ron Galati, and we ended up being friends. And we ended up going, and I I probably wrote about him in Sex and the City. Uh, we went to Aspen with, you know, Mr. Big, and, <laughs> and um, which was something that I did write about in the book. We were good friends. And then I sold a column to be a book, which I had done pretty early on. Was that the normal trajectory? Because I can't no. think of, yeah, that feels very unique. No. You know, it happened at Bowery Bar and my publisher, Morgan Entrican, who is small literary publisher, which means no money, um, <laughs> he bought it to be a book at Bowery Bar. That's where all the deals go down. Bowery so bar. that was that was where all the deals happened. I yeah. mean, that was really there was no Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like you had to go out, you had to be there, and stuff happened. And so I told Darren about it, and he said, "Oh, I want to buy it to be a TV show." But before that, I had a meeting with HBO. Somebody said to me, like the first as soon as you left the room, the first thing they said was, "Let's get rid of that writer." Which is what they want to do, by the way. Yeah. Anybody who's listening, you think like, oh, I'm going to turn my book into a TV series and I'm going to – no. <laughs> the first thing they're doing is they're cutting you out in any way they can. And New Line was interested and Fine Line and – To make it a movie instead of a TV To make it a movie. Series. ABC made an offer. HBO made an offer. And – Darren Starr made an offer, and I ended up selling it to Darren because he knows how to do a hit TV show. Also, I felt like we had a very similar sense of humor. He also paid $5,000 more. 
Nice. <laughs> Which well, was a lot of money back then. That's a lot of like money Like five now. grand yeah. was, you could live on that for a month. Okay, maybe, yeah, maybe it, it went like, a little further in the 90s than it would now. Like but. now, it's like, geez, I can't even go to a restaurant. <laughs> but I, it seems like Darren wanted to do something tonally different because I think what gets forgotten in the Sex and the City of it all that Chelsea and I want to discuss with you is that the first few seasons and certainly that first season was much grittier and it seems like Darren wanted to do something and even pairing with HBO, which... People have such yes. a different vision of what HBO is now compared to in 1997 when it was like real sex and boxing is my memory of HBO. Arliss. Oh, and Arliss. Sex in the City was on before The Sopranos. It It, it, it is, was. and it gets lost in the conversation Yes, and about it gets that. lost in that conversation. But Darren had done Central Park West for CBS, so he really – wanted to do something different. For I mean, first of all, the pilot, we went to St. Bart's to work on the pilot. Great idea. <laughs> Which, of course, we, you know, didn't end up doing that much. Well, most of writing, as you know, is not writing, just sort of thinking about writing. Yes. Half of the lines from the pilot are from the book. I see everything that they took from the book in the first two seasons. It was a lot grittier, and it was also considered really smart. And you had so many wonderful female directors working in the first we season also. We had Susan Seidelman, who directed the pilot, and she did Desperately Seeking Susan. Allison Anders. Yes. It was the equivalent of literary. Yeah. You know, it was highbrow. And the show, it really had a cult following. It wasn't commercial. And then it became much more. A cultural phenomenon. Right. Yeah. At what point did you figure that out? Did you realize this isn't just a hit show? This is a cultural phenomenon? Because I can't really think of many writers that have had a comparable experience to you. You know, I wasn't paying that much attention. I, I mean, I remember at the New York Observer when my editor said, hey, Sex in the City, it's really becoming a hit. I, I, I didn't really own a TV. I didn't watch much TV. <laughs> you must have so, watched Sex in the City, though. I, well, I got the DVDs. No. Oh my God! No, they you weren't. I, they weren't DVDs. They were not DVDs. VHS. They were VHS <laughs> that you would slot in. Yes, in 1998, I I actually did have a TV because I had a house up in Connecticut and I had a TV up there. I don't know. I mean, I was probably it'd probably be after the maybe around the third season. That's when it felt like it started to take off because you clearly must have seen it on the streets. How it changed people, the way that they dressed, pop culture. No? I was in that world. You know, it's like I was in the original world. So it was like we were still doing our thing. But, you know, when people started having this idea of, oh, I'm going to move to New York and be a writer. That was me. <laughs> what and does it feel like to know that so many people moved to New York chasing essentially a fictionalized version of your life. I think one of the things that's really hard about it is that, you know, real writers are born, not made. It's really something that you feel like you have to do or you will die. So for me, it's 
always a little bit unsettling that people have this idea like, oh, I can put on this persona and become a writer. It's like, no, that's not really how it works. But it seems to have worked that way for a lot of people. Well, certainly with how fame functions today. Speaking of which, what do you find the biggest misconceptions about the kind of fame that you have? Sort of, a, which again, there's really not uh, another example of that. I, well, in terms of like being known or being famous in New York, I've always been famous in New York. Like right. I, the, the moment I arrived, like people knew my name and people were talking about me because I did so many outrageous things. Being known to a larger audience, that it's like, well, I don't have that kind of Instagram followers. Like the real housewives are famous. <laughs> like if I go out with Luann, you know, everybody recognizes her. And, you know, it's like Luann does, I don't know how many cameos, you know, how many recordings <laughs> she does for cameo. Like, you know, someone's like, join cameo. I've done literally, I've made like a thousand dollars in. <laughs> Six months. It's like, come on. So in that sense, I, I'm i not famous. I think to really be famous, you have to be on TV. Well, since you but, brought up The Real Housewives, have you ever been asked to be on the show? I have been on the show. Oh, oh we know we you've know. been on the show. Right. But we meant as a, a permanent no, cast member. No, I haven't. I haven't. First of all, I had my own TV show in 1994. Six and 1997 called Sex, Lives, and Video Clips. And it was on VH1. <gasps> I've tried to find it, but you I can't cannot, find you it. Can't it's find like, it. I think I might have some VHS tapes. Does anyone somewhere. work at VH1 that's listening? Like, can you help us out? Because I think this needs to be unearthed. That's the yes. like, premium app I want. It's like, just give me all that content. <laughs> and and I also thought, like, I looked really good back then, too. <laughs> Somehow, I was like, my hair was really long. I was like, damn, I looked really good that then. I looked really good on TV. I mean, one of the things that I didn't like about doing it was I didn't like sitting in front of the mirror for two hours because I thought that's really mentally unhealthy. It's very narcissistic. And then you start thinking like, uh, you just become obsessed with your looks. Little did I know that would be the future. <laughs> with the selfie and everything. Yeah, it's truly hellish right now. Yes. Yeah. If we could go back to the Housewives, because I <laughs> Yes, the Housewives. Lauren, Lauren is a big fan of Real Housewives of New York. I am pretty naive, so I'll oh, let you take I this. I am. Well, you know, I know, I know all of them. I mean, I've known Ramona since the 80s. But that's the crazy thing is that they, they shoehorn in these women and pretend like they have a friendship. But you actually have a friendship with most of the women. You are actually the person on the receiving end of Dorinda's infamous, how am I doing not well, bitch. Right. Well, that was because I, I really didn't know Dorinda. I saw Dorinda at that party, and, you know. And, of course, they had cut away because right. I was like, oh – Hey, oh, Dorinda, what was that about? And she was like, let me tell you what I said. <laughs> she said, how are you doing? And I said, not well, bitch. And she wasn't actually talking to me. She was talking to about somebody else. Um, so it was as campy as it looked in person, <laughs> to experience it in person as it looked on television. Okay. I was so naive about 
the Real Housewives for a long time. I was like, it's real. They go to these real places that I go to, <laughs> and it's real. Well, do the filming a couple times. It is not real. <laughs> and they and I kept walking around saying like, whoa, it's not real. And then Carol. Yeah, Carol Redswell. Carol Redswell. I was like, hi, Carol, how are you? Because I used to hang out with Carol a bit. And I love Carol. And she was kind of weird. And I was like, what's wrong with you? To be fair, she's kind of weird on the show. But <laughs> she was weird on the show. She was weirdly not the way she was in real life. Yeah. You might be too real to be on the show, actually. I was too real. I got into a lot of trouble because they said I was breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> because they want to keep up this pretense that it's actually real. And then we were at dinner. It was at Ramona's house. We were at dinner. And this is when... R Ramona might actually, to go back to your point about no one's having as much sex as Samantha, Ramona might. Yeah. I got to tell you, Ramona looks really, really good. She does. <laughs> I mean, Ramona is like the best looking 66-year-old. Jesus, she's 66. She's 66. Take it from us, Chell. <laughs> Ramona looks great. <laughs> she looks great. I mean, I just saw her the other, other day. And she's like, Candace, you 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 just like me. You're gonna look great too when you're 66. I'm like, it's only a year and a half away, Ramona. <laughs> I don't know, but I I guess that answers a rumor between those of us that watch Housewives and Sex in the City. So to know that you don't actually know Dorinda that well, that means that Susan Sharon is not based on Dorinda. No, no, absolutely not. Susan Sharon. Is based on someone who Darren Star and I know. Okay. Most of those people are based on someone that Darren and I know. So it's an inside joke between it's, you and Darren. Yes. So we need to get into the end just like that of it all. What do you think about Aiden's impending return? Because this is really dominating the headlines. It's a really good move because it's so real. It absolutely is something that happens in people's lives when you're in your 50s or 60s, an old boyfriend comes back around, if you're lucky. And <laughs> I went on a couple of dates with this one guy, and he was like, all these women in their 60s, they're just hoping that their, you know, their old boyfriend's going to come back and be with them. And I have to say to him, he's not. You're too old now. <laughs> what the it's fuck? Like, Whoa, you are so fuck harsh, dude. So are you saying this but, from personal experience? Like, are you recycling some of your old boyfriends? I am not. Um, who could I recycle? Well, I did hear could that you went on a date with John Corbett. Perhaps he could be recycled? He's with Bo Derek. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. right. How could I forget? Can you tell us about that date, though? Because we really do need to know every last detail. I mean, we don't to need to know. Too. We want to know. <laughs> Darren Starr used to have a party every summer, and he would invite all the cast to come. And it was a really fun party, and it was in style somehow through it, too. And it was basically – maybe it was only 80 people. Um, so he came one year, and he was like, really – flirting with me so much and i was like really and then he called me wow and i was all excited and then it was months later i talked to him and he said he was in new york you know we went to dinner and it was fun he was and he is 
a great guy. And then I think he was leaving the next day and I didn't hear from him, which was fine. <laughs> and then I think I read a couple of days later, like, oh, he's dating Bo Derek. So <laughs> and he had just he just he met her. He went back to LA and he met her and they started seeing each other. But he's He's a super nice guy. So he might be the one that got away for you as well, in a sense. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, actors are, they're never who they are on TV. You guys know that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like there are a lot of actors where people are like, oh my God, he's so hot. It's like, met him in real life. And let me tell you. He gives off no sex vibe, okay? <laughs> None. He is not hot in person. It only matters what they're like in person. That's my <laughs> attitude. So is it safe to say you haven't dated too many other famous guys? Oh, I know you've dated famous guys. No, Who have you I dated? I really haven't. I really haven't. Really? Yeah. I mean, rich older guys don't like me <laughs> uh, because I'm just too, like, you know, snappy. Is it about dating younger guys these days? Because there were some rumors oh. that you were dating a, a younger guy last oh, year. I know. <laughs> and it was I, – I wasn't dating him. I just – I think I went to dinner with him a couple times and I had to pay. And he was <laughs> – first of all, this kid was – he was 21. Oh. I was like – and I was with Nicole Miller. Okay. The yeah, yeah you're your bestie. You guys My hang bestie. out a lot. bestie. We hang out a lot because we both like to go out. We've been going out for 40 years. <laughs> um, and she had a party during fashion week and and he was there and he came over and and Nicole and I, we were literally the oldest people there by about 30 years. And we, Nicole and I kept looking at each other like – do you know how old we are? And I don't know. Maybe this guy didn't Google, didn't Google me or something. But I, you know, we we hung out a couple times. He was really, really tall. He was six foot eight, and he was really thin. And I just kept thinking, do you have enough money for food? <laughs> I mean, all I could think was someone's got to give this guy food and then i kept thinking oh my god like, <laughs> so you're just being how charitable how much would it cost yeah. to go out with this guy uh, <laughs> if we could go back to and just like that we were curious about your thoughts on the decision to kill mr big obviously that was convenient giving a certain hollywood reporter article that came out around the release of of and just like that but Taking that out of the equation, do you think that was a smart decision? Obviously, you're psyched for Carrie to be potentially dating Aiden in the second season. I, You know, I think it was really the only decision they could make. I mean, if you look at it from a – I have to sell people on the idea of this TV show because I'm sure that they probably had to go in and do some pitching. So it's just the basic questions that people ask is like, well, what's the character's journey going to be? What's her arc going to be? I mean, in a way, there's really no show if Mr. Big is still alive. 
Yes, but we wanted him to be arrested for financial crimes because oh, I feel like right. that would be a plausible exit for him also as the average Sex in the City viewer, myself included, really has no idea what he does for a living. Yes, I don't know either. But <laughs> they also change it halfway through the series from, uh, as he's described in the pilot, as a younger Donald Trump to... Which was something that Darren put in because, <laughs> you know, we were all like... Donald Trump, nobody cares about him. Don't put his name in. But Darren was very much, his attitude was like, you know, people, you know, in the heartlands know who Donald Trump is, but they wouldn't know who any oh, other rich oh, guy is. Oh, how prescient Darren Star was. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Do you have any Trump stories? Because I imagine you would cross paths with him here and there. He used to go out every single night. He knew who I was. I don't know how. But, and he would You're be like, blonde and hot and live in New York. And, and he would call me Candace. Candace! Candace! And I think he was with Marla Maples at the time, and she was really she was really nice. Everybody liked Marla. And, you know, he was one of those people, if you were around him, he was the greatest, but you were also the greatest as well. It would be like, oh, Candace, she's the greatest writer in New York. It's like, okay, that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> That's a lie, but okay. So he was so, supportive. <laughs> well, he was like that with everybody. It was like every, you know, the waiter was, this waiter's the greatest waiter. Ever. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's now shifted inward because there was that footage of him at a East Palestine at a McDonald's and he was like, I just got to say, I think I know this menu better than you do. Just got to say. And he's saying this to McDonald's employees. <laughs> Speaking of very divisive people, <laughs> would you go to Che Diaz's comedy concert? I love Che Diaz. All right. I okay, don't know. Let's do I it. just think it's so hilarious when people are like, I hate Che. I hate Che. I, 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 I won't watch if Che's on it. That's so weird. Like, I actually love Che because Che smokes pot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and she's like, Miranda, I have been smoking pot for 15 years. I don't remember anything. I'm like, I'm with you, Che. <laughs> okay? I feel you. So you like pot. Interesting. I would, yes. I mean, same. I mean, no judgment. Now I don't really. There's a time and a place. Yeah. There's a time and a place. I think we have a love-hate relationship with Che. I think Che added something to the show that is just fun to talk about and I think made it a fun show in a way. Right. But I think there are other parts of the character that just don't make so much sense to me, I guess, as a character. Yeah. I mean, people talk a lot about how Sex and the City when it originally aired – because everyone was watching it at the same time and you had all these water cooler moments. Che is a definitely, in these modern streaming show times, a water cooler moment. So, yes. And we're, we're never going to stop watching because of a character. But speaking of Miranda, what do you think about her progression and, and just like that? Because Cynthia is a brilliant actress regardless, but Miranda seems to be hanging on by a thread as a character. What do you think about that shift? Do you think that's realistic for a woman in her 50s? It's not unusual. To me, like, the character is closer to Cynthia Nixon and the way she is in her real life. So I, I think one of the things that's happening to the characters is that they're becoming much closer to the actresses, less about the characters. 
I think that that's inevitably going to be something that happens. Look, the show's been on the air for 20 – it's 25 years. Yeah, yeah, this summer. This summer. It's 25 years. Is there anything that you haven't seen addressed on the show yet that you would like to? I mean, you're someone who is dating. Well, Out I'm there not going to streets. say because, you know, I'm doing my own show. That's very yeah. true. You know, I've been doing a version of Is There Still Sex in the City since – 2018. And the book came out in 2019. So it was sold to be a TV series. And I wrote the pilot with another woman. And then the pandemic came. And then when we finally turned it in, that was like the same time that they announced that they were going to do And Just Like That. So that TV show got killed because of And Just Like That. So that's the downside of being me, as this woman said, like, oh, you just you had a TV show that's just too successful. Hollywood's a bitch, right? It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bitch. But how does that feel? I mean, as you said, for 25 years, there's been this literary and now television and film avatar of you just running wild in the streets. That you're not writing. So. And you have no control over. So it's, what's that you know, like? I mean, that's sort of the other side of the coin. Yeah. It's like, well, people want sex in the city. You can't really get sex in the city because it's something that, number one, it evolved. You know, I don't know exactly what they mean when they say that. Do you want it what it was at the beginning? Or do you want what it was in the movies, which is totally different, you know? And then just like that is a completely different iteration. So it's like things don't really get a chance to be their own thing. It's always like in the shadow of sex in the city. And Darren seems, Darren's, I think, has been able to kind of maneuver that a little bit better. You know, With he, Emily in Paris. You with, went to the premiere. Yes. And and I do love Emily in Paris. I mean, it is. Same. It's a definitely like a sex in the city kind of show. For sure. I would and, think that there would be more shows sort of in that genre or Sex in the City adjacent shows. No. Lipstick Jungle is obviously in the same world, but there hasn't really been, which I find to be fascinating. One thing I'm curious about, can you tell us about your friendship with Kim Cattrall? Because you guys have obviously known each other for a long time. Recently, you guys have been showing up for each other. She came to your one-woman show at the Carlisle. You yes. went to her variety yes. event where she did the viral speech. Can you talk about that relationship? You know, Kim was really best friends with Darren Starr's old boyfriend, okay. a guy named Dennis. Cool. And Dennis is the one who brought Kim in to be Samantha. He was like, Darren, you got to see Kim. And I happened to be there when Kim did her audition. Wow. I don't really think it was an audition. It was a meeting. And, and you know, she was like, I don't really know. I don't know if I really know, get this character. Because she did not live in New York. And, you know, that character was very much a New York character. And so I kind of gave her a little pep talk, gave her some, hopefully some insights. And so then, you know, I mean, we were – Definitely friendly friends. But, you know, this is something that people don't remember. Kim got married. She was married the whole time that right. Sex in the City was airing. To Mark. Yes. We, this guy we, named we know, Mark. We read their book. Yes. yes. Have you read their book? 
I don't think I actually read it. There's not much to read. It's a lot yeah, of illustration. <laughs> Love exactly. to Kim, but yeah, it is it is illustration heavy. Yes. And that was, I think Mark really wanted her to do that book. So it's in a way, it's it's really sort of only recently that I've kind of reconnected with her in some ways because then she didn't live in New York. Maybe she wasn't here that much. I don't know. But I feel like I run into her and her boyfriend, Russ, who's super, super nice. I really feel like I should text her and say, let's get together. I mean, we'll we'll wait if you want to text him. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. But it, it seems but, like there's a lot of overlap between you guys with the the kind of the shadow of Sex in the City. As amazing of an experience as it was, I think you're both pegged with the avatars that you have: her with Samantha, you with Carrie, and right. Well, the interesting thing is we never talk about the show or. And just like that. I can see that. You're, I just, believe it. Yeah, you're so you know, close to it. You know, there's, it's like a, that's a job as an actress. It's it's a job. So so she's like over talking about it. I'm sure she I, is. But Kim's also very dignified. She's very different than, than the character. She's very different than the character. She's very self-possessed. She's really a girl's girl. She's very warm She's really nice. I used to think, Kim, you are too nice. She's from Canada. She's yes. Canadian <laughs> nice. Right. That's, like, that's another that level that, of nice. You know, Canadians can only be – I used to worry about her like, Kim, you're going to get chewed up in New York. <laughs> I feel like we should take a cue from you and, and Kim and stop talking about sex in the city. So I'd like to talk about fashion with you for a little bit. You love clothes. You're very immersed in the New York fashion world. What are the craziest things you own? You know, God forbid your apartment's on fire. But like, what are what are you grabbing? A Apart from the dogs. Yes. Oh, God. The dogs are safe. <laughs> what would I grab? Do you keep things I, you know, from like I ages do, ago? Or? I feel like I kept a lot of things from the 90s. For instance, I had that Gucci dress. I think Kate Moss wore it. I'm not sure. It was the long white column with the cutout and then – Oh, it had that the, Gucci dress. Oh, that goodness. Gucci dress with the gold – it From was, the first or second collection. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I met this guy and he was like, I could sell it to a museum. Well, he hasn't sold it yet. <laughs> Candace, you have to wear it. Well, you can't sell that. It's, you know, these clothes are really small. I, I okay. mean, when I well, look, when I look at these clothes, like, and I've tried to sell some of them, but it takes a, them a really long time to sell. And I'm like, what? What's going on? I mean, I can't fit into these clothes. Candace, from you can't be on the real real. I'll buy. I'll buy that Gucci dress from you. <laughs> <laughs> also, I just want to note for the listeners, Candace is like the smallest person I've ever seen. So this baffles yeah. me. I, everybody in my family is small. They're just small people, and <laughs> I, I know it's like I have these. Like I have this Calvin Klein suit, white Calvin Klein suit that I wore on. Oh, God, that newscaster who got to so much trouble. Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose. I Charlie saw Rose. that. You looked uh, incredible. Thank you had you. your hair up. I had my hair up, yeah. which I never wear. And I actually tried to put that suit on. I was like, how did I even wear this? <laughs> who was I? 
<laughs> I always joke with Chelsea, one day we'll have an Every Outfit Museum and perhaps we'll have the, the 90s clothing retrospective of Candace Bushnell. Well, I have some fantastic Dolce & Gabbana things that I got in Milan when I went with Ron Galati. We stayed at the Four Seasons. It was it was like bougie. the big. It was so bougie. <laughs> it was just like a big deal, and and I was going shopping, and somehow I felt like I had money, and and you know there were things that you could buy in Milan that you couldn't buy anywhere else. This red plaid jacket with a leopard lining, and then I had gloves, and then it had this cool bra and. It had like a sequined halter sheer that went over it. That sounds amazing. I love the idea of you doing Dolce Vita shit (laughs) in Italy. On a related note, I saw a clip from your one-woman show, which we tragically haven't seen as we are sad Los Angeles residents. But there is a line in there where you say something to the effect of, I paid for my own closet or I built my own closet. Yes, yes. So there's one of the things that I do in the show is real or not real. So I show clips from the show. It's basically, it's a game with the audience. Oh, that's amazing. Of what's Real or not real. One of the things is the senator. Did I go out with a senator? (laughs) Well, I did. And that's where they got the story. (laughs) Except that the senator I went out with was Aldamato. Oh, wow. I don't know if you guys even (laughs) remember him. But, you know, he was like Mr. Potholes. uh, And he was a Republican. But this was... He was 1997 or whatever, when Republicans weren't so horrible. Well, also, it's funny you mentioned <laughs> that because my only um, – I'm Chelsea calls me human IMDb. But um, I remember him from Devil's Advocate, which was came out in 1997. He's featured in that. Yes. <laughs> See, you and, say you don't date famous people, yet here we are. <laughs> well, a senator with a cameo in, in 1997's Devil's Advocate. Yes. So – and then there are, there's, you know, some other – Questions. There's some questions about, you know, when she has sex with the Calvin Klein underwear model. Did I have sex with that guy? No, because I had sex with a hotter Calvin Klein underwear model, the real one in real life. Um, And then one of the questions is, did I end up with a closet like Carrie Bradshaw's at the end of the first movie? The first movie, yeah. Yeah, he built her a closet. Uh, No. And then I show my closet from my little one-bedroom apartment. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's a real New York closet. And people are like, oh. Yeah, do people gasp when they see (laughs) the Yes, they're so disappointed. And then the line is the difference between Carrie Bradshaw's closet and mine is that I paid for my closet myself. Nice. Incredible. Were you nervous at all? I mean, there are Broadway actors. I mean, Chell and I could never. We're very much, you know, behind the the podcast doors. But was this something you were nervous about doing? You seem so comfortable just reciting this right now. No, I wasn't (laughs) nervous. I mean, I probably should have been, but that's actually one of the reasons why I did the show because I met I met this guy named Mark Johnson who is David Foster's producer and manager. Okay. And David Foster has a one-man show. Now of course he does it with his wife. And so I met Mark and David Foster and then Mark and I kind of got to be a little bit friendly and then Mark realized that she's fearless. And then he said you you could have a one-person show. 
I'll help you do this one woman show. Um, and then it just, it grew from there. Like we got this, a Broadway director interested and then they raised money and, and, you know, I ended up doing it off Broadway. I never was nervous. You don't seem like a nervy person. But if I, you know, if I were really nervous, I wouldn't have done it. I don't want to be that uncomfortable. Like for what? It's like there isn't enough money in it. Right. You right. know? <laughs> to, right. Theater. <laughs> yeah. You know, to, you know, put yourself out there like, hey, it's not really hard. It's just different. I think it's hard for most people. I think it's something I, that comes naturally to you. Yes, it probably does. And like <laughs> the memorization is something that also is not difficult. Now watch, somebody will come to the show and it'll be like, I'll totally forget it. I'll be like, ah. But I, you know, my fears were things like, geez, what if all of a sudden I have to go to the bathroom? And, you know, what if I just lose control and, you know, on stage? <laughs> what, and like then I realized on the stage. <laughs> and then I realized if that happens, I'll probably be dead. So it won't matter. You'll go so, out with a bang. <laughs> exactly. So I need to know. Is there actually still sex in the city? Because we've recently seen an influx of hot girls like Julia Fox talking publicly about the fact that they don't really care about sex that much. And you've been studying sex, writing right. about sex, dating in New York for years. So is sex still exciting to you as a person, as a writer? I think the I don't have sex thing kind of harkens back to Paris Hilton mm -hmm. because, I mean – there was that sex tape, but also right. she's not really that sexual that of a person. Sexual. I mean, that's not like the vibe she gives off. There's just so many other things to do these days besides having <laughs> sex. And and you know, sex is you pretty much have to take your clothes off. You have to deal with another <laughs> yeah, human being, you know, yeah. with them physically. And Chell and I have this back and forth as someone that prefers having mm -hmm. sex with men. It's it's disgusting. I don't I, I don't recommend. <laughs> also, sex toys have come up so much as well. It's we're almost there. You and me, Candace. We'll just we'll have a perfect robot sex doll. Well, men certainly are going to. Yeah, they are already <laughs> putting those out there. And also, I mean, it sort of doesn't surprise me a little bit about Julia Fox saying that. I mean, heterosexual sex is not always that fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The batting and, average doesn't seem as and, high. This is a public service <laughs> announcement. And, well, you know, and I think for a lot, a lot of women discover like, oh, I just feel like I'm being used for one of my three holes. I, I, I don't want to be graphic, but you know, no, I mean, there. You know, this is a this is kind of a an issue for women, and I I think it's even more true now because of the pro proliferation of porn. Yeah. So it's like now you're really competing against porn and against you know very unrealistic expectations. I mean, I think the difference, one of the big differences between like sex now and sex back in, you know, 1980 was people spent a lot more time on sex. Maybe it was because I was young, but it was like, yeah, you know, you 
This How much like time were we talking about? It could be an hour, no. hour, a couple hours. Uh, you know, it's like you're hanging out. Yeah, and you're. But I, but I do think you're right. I do think that with the pl- proliferation of pornography, which a lot of people have talked about, but to your point of like sex lasting less, I think there's a whole generation now, a second generation with Gen Z, learning what sex is from porn, which is edited a particular way. Like maybe before a man didn't know how to fuck, but now they're trying to fuck like porn stars. And I'm not sure which one's worse. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, there's like attention. Sex is sort of against everything that people are into these days. I mean, in a way, it's not really supposed to be just about you. (laughs) And it requires, you know, paying attention. It requires communication. It requires like being in tune with somebody. I mean, it's sex is ultimately like the best, deepest form of communication. But Getting there that these days when you can't even get a text back seems <sighs> difficult. Yeah. No, I hear you. So, I mean, the whole way that we reproduce is so different. sexless as it's, well. It yeah. can be sexless. I mean, I think the future is, you know, techno- I always say this, technology only goes in one direction. So like all those TikTok stars, it's like, honey, get ready because in three years, you're not going to make money off of TikTok anymore. Yeah. You're going to be over and something <laughs> else will be happening. Um, but, you know, there's just a lot of different ways to reproduce and people are going to do that, engage in that more and more and more. I mean, that's really the future. So you are child-free by choice, and I can only assume that you faced a certain level of societal pressure to have children. What advice do you have for people who may be feeling that pressure? To me, one of the interesting things is that 86% of women over the age of 50 are mothers. It's a huge number. The number of men over the age of 50 who are fathers is like (laughs) 61.5%. So there's a very big gap there. And women are still told to this day, because I got tangled up in something where, you know, the Daily Mail said, she regrets not having kids. It's like, I never said that. Like, my father just died. I was feeling a little sad. Okay. And I... I forgot, like, when you do an interview, ambiguity is not your friend. You have to be very clear. And the vitriol that comes out, like, ah, the cat women. I mean, it's astonishing how much hatred there is out there for women. Yeah, because people want to control women. But, ultimately. you know, people want to control women. And, And, you know, women are basically told that you can't get any satisfaction out of your life except by having kids, where we tell men a very different story. My feeling is probably, you know, that 86% of women who are mothers and have children should probably be 75%. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of women's careers get derailed because they have kids. It's like, why don't we have more female CEOs? Why don't we have more female directors, more, you know, all of it? And one of the reasons is because women always get derailed by having kids. But at the same time, society says, you know, you'll have no meaning in your life without children. 
I mean, I feel like I'm lucky because I knew from a very early age, like why I was here. And that reason was not to have children. So I, this was something that like, I was really kind of born with this feeling. Even in my thirties, you know, I'd hear about like, oh, some woman she's getting, you know, she was so great. She had such a great career. Now she's getting married and having kids. And I would I would feel sorry for them. I would be like, oh, you poor thing. You had to give in to societal expectations. But for so many women, that's a reality. And most women will end up having kids. Well, it seems like the numbers are a bit in decline now, no? I think the numbers are in decline. Did you hear that female homeowners now outnumber male homeowners, like single women? Yes, You know, I always say this to women. It takes a certain kind of courage not to have kids because you really, if you don't have kids, you are bucking the system. Right. You are striking out on your own. So much of people's lives is taken up by childcare. Like you've got to live in the same place. You've got to get those kids to school. (laughs) You got to take them to the doctor. You know, it's just, it's a lot of little tasks. I don't know. I mean, I just... It, it was, wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. It's not for a lot of women, you know, and I think it's great that you talk about that openly. And I, and I think knowing that is more important because I agree with you. I think there's a lot more women who are mothers who probably shouldn't be mothers. Maybe yes. I just said the more controversial statement than saying you don't well, want children. you know, there's... I started reading this book, Regretting Motherhood. Oh, that'll make you not want to have kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't find that Reddit thread of people that regret having having kids. kids. That's truly dark. What happens to a lot of women is we're not really expected to get satisfaction from your career. So at a certain point, a lot of women just kind of crumble. It's like it kind of happens. They decide to go with it. Maybe this will put the meaning into their life. Yeah. Well, you have dogs, though, so same, same. (laughs) It is, except they don't last that long. Right. Well, how long does a standard poodle live for? No, they don't live that long. I mean, I have a bulldog. They live for like eight to 10 years. So that's really not that long. Yeah, that's not that long. I had a couple of Sharpays and they didn't live that long. Mm. But the poodles live kind of 12 years. One of them's almost 13. So I'm like, Yes, I've been a good dog mother. If she (laughs) makes it to like 13, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. So I want to know what's next for you. Can you tell us about this memoir that you're working on? Yeah, I I didn't hear that, that you were working on Yes. I mean, I've had the contract to do this memoir for three years. I haven't done it because I I feel like, ugh. I, you know, I would much rather write fiction, you know, write about a couple that gets broken up with because of chatbot or whatever that thing is. <laughs> Chat GPT. Chat GPT. <laughs> you know, and the guy's like, he buys into it and breaks up with his girlfriend because the Chat GPT tells him to. So you also read that horrifying New York Times article. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I read everything. So I'm working on that and like I'm just really at the beginning, but there's so I had sex so much. 
Like, there's so much sex. I'm like, I can I put all this sex in? Like, like with this older, famous guy. You know, he's like a lot older than I am. So then there was a guy who was just like 20 years older. And I was like, oh, he seems so young. So I ended up Wait, having sex with him. How and old then is the, the old really guy, old guy? He was older, like 60. Okay. That's, and I you know. was 18. Oh, Okay, but that is an age difference. Yeah, we definitely want to hear about that. We but do. But I was in love with him, and it's one of the things that I talk about in the show too. Yeah, I was, I was like eighteen, and I really, I was like, we are just alike. He's a writer. I am a writer. I really felt like we were kindred spirits. Of course, now you never feel that way about anybody. There's that, and then again, I wrote another pilot. For a TV show, and you just keep pitching it, and then you just keep writing it until finally someone's like, "Now, yeah, no, we we've been we there. Get it's, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know what why, that's like. Why do you think we ended up podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's TV is a very closed business. Well, we for two will be the first in line for this memoir. Yeah, this You're, all sounds it's incredible. Very, very, you know, it's will it will be about the eighties and. Yeah, it's a different time. See, virtual reality is such a thing now, but I don't want to like go back and look at the dinosaurs or race cars. I want like your point of view going out in New York in, in the, the 80s. 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s. Like that, that's what I actually want. So I think yeah. people will absolutely love your book. That's the immersive it experience was, I want. Yeah, seriously. Yes, but you know, it's the times were different. I mean, people were really. You know, as I said, cynical, sarcastic. You know, I mean, New York was re- it was about like, hey, there was this <laughs> attitude that people had, like, we are all stuck because back then New York was it was Manhattan. You know, we are all stuck on this tiny island <laughs> together. Some Lord of the Flies shit. Yeah, real Lord of the Flies stuff. I mean, and <laughs> you know, you have figures like. Anna Wintour and Tina Brown and people really cared about society and they really cared about going out and being invited to the right things and being seen talking to the right people. I mean, it was really bonfire of the vanities. You know, now because of the internet, people aren't really so much like that anymore. Yeah, no, you are correct. They're not. They need to be reminded of what it was like. (laughs) Candice, thank you so much for being here. You're such thank an inspiration you. to us, our listeners, and this was an absolute pleasure. We could clearly talk to you all day, but I'm sure you have much cooler things to be doing. <laughs> and just to remind everyone, Candace's show, Is There Still Sex in the City, is running at Cafe Carlisle from April 25th to 29th. And Lauren and I will be back next week, as always. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.